Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hey, weirdos. Rachel here. Just wanted to let you know that the episode you are about to listen to or watch if you're on YouTube is the live show we hosted at Caveat in New York City in August 2023. It was so much fun and we're really excited to get to share at least a little bit of that magic with those of you who didn't get to catch the live stream or hang out with us in person. Jess and I are hard at work making sure that Weirdest Things stays alive for 2024, but for now, we do know that we're going to be taking at least a few weeks off to reset, recharge, and get back to making some awesome weird stuff for y'all. If you want to keep up with us in the meantime and find out exactly when Weirdest Thing is coming back, you can follow Jess on Twitch and you can follow me on Substack and or Patreon. That's where you can get all the latest updates on Weirdest Thing, plus other stuff that Jess and I are up to. Have a great holiday season, a happy new year, and we will see you in 2024. Enjoy the show. Hello, I am Rachel Feldman, the host of The Weirdest Thing I'm In This Week. Welcome to The Weirdest Thing I'm In This Week live for the first time in a long time. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, before we get started, I need to bring on my co-hosts. It's a real throwback. We have some fan favorites with us tonight from our OG Weirdest Thing days. Uh, First, our illustrious producer, Jess Bodie, who listens to my math sound so you don't have to. Also, a Twitch star. Does it matter where I sit? No. Okay. <laughs> uh, next up, we have, um, she asked to be introduced as the Lockpa Queen and then said, no, never mind, but I did it anyway. It's Sarah Chodosh. <laughs> You, you can't you can't give me that and then take it away from me. And last but not least, she runs, she writes, she's amazing. She's Claire Maldarelli. <laughs> uh, so first up, um, I, I have to ask: uh, Is anyone here a fan of the podcast, the weirdest thing I learned this week? <laughs> Wonderful. Is anyone not a fan of the podcast? Has anyone been dragged here? Do you know where you are? Do you need help? Blink twice. Well, no, actually, you're stuck here. Sorry, I'm not going to do anything about that. Um, thank you so much for joining. Also, another question. Um, how many folks have been to live shows with us before? No. <laughs> Thanks, no. Amy. 
Well, I'm so happy that so many of you are joining us for the first time and for our folks at home everywhere in the world. Thank you for joining us over live stream. We are so psyched to be back. Our last live show of any kind was two years ago, which is wild. And that was hybrid. You know, we dragged some friends here to be in the audience, so we felt less alone, but um, we still didn't get to hang out with most of y'all. So uh, we've really missed you, and we're really excited to be back. Um, so let's get into it. On the Weirdest Thing I Learned this week, we start by each offering up a little tease about some kind of fact or story we found in the course of reading, writing, reporting, et cetera, and decide which one we just absolutely have to hear more about first. Then once we've all had time to spin our little science yarns, we reconvene and decide what the weirdest thing we learned this week actually was, or whatever. Um, <laughs> uh, Sarah, what's your tease? I'm going to be talking about how uh, trees are not a thing. Great. Like birds, fake. Trees? Sarah's going to talk about how trees are not a thing. <laughs> so, <laughs> someone is trying to silence you. Yeah. And this is a truth. Please. Yeah. <laughs> Big tree. Um, Claire, what's your tease? Yes, I, can you hear me? No. <laughs> it's cool. Uh, so, oh, did, yeah. You go. Oh, okay. Um, my tease is that I'm going to talk about um, the history of uh, one of the most classic magic tricks and um, how it is like steeped in misogyny and uh, also is fantastic. I love that. Yeah. Classic weirdest thing tropes in there. Yep. Uh, and Jess, what's your tease? My tease is I'm going to talk about telling fortunes using cheese. Oh, another classic weirdest thing, yarn. Yeah. Wonderful. How are we doing over there? Yeah, can we? Oh, can you hear me? No. Well, you can hear me. Well, yeah, oh, yeah, I can hear I think you. it's, I think maybe now. Now. Hello. Oh. 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 Maybe I just don't know how microphones work. Um, okay. No, I think it was off. I'm just really close now. <laughs> uh, so, Claire, what's your tease? Yes, I would like to talk about the connection between sunscreen uh, the U.S. Army and life rafts. Oh, well. Yes. A a <laughs> Speaking of life rafts, I was just texting with Sarah recently because there's now a reality show based on the sex raft experiment. <laughs> but it Which was really was a previous live yeah, show. Yeah, facts. yeah, yeah. But I was really disappointed. I was. I went from being so excited, like literally screaming. <laughs> to uh, being very disappointed with where they went with it. Obviously, Sarah should have been hired as a consultant, and they really missed the boat. But um, anyway, we're just like, we're, we're thought leaders here. So anyone looking for uh, unscripted TV ideas, don't get them here. We're not scabs, but, you know, <laughs> later. So let's start with totally spontaneously me. OK, so when you think of magic, the first thing you think of is probably the discovery of witchcraft, wherein the lewd dealing of witches and witchmongers is notably detected. Uh, the Nari of conjurers, the imb I can't keep reading that. It's really old timey. But um, this 1584 classic uh, is a 16 book series. Um, and no, just me, is this is not what everyone thinks of when they think of the, the history of magic? Okay, well, Reginald Scott 
wrote this book, which almost shares the title with like an extremely horny book and TV show, like so horny that I tried to watch it as background TV during work because that's like the level of quality it is. But then I had to like stop that because it was like too horny to watch during work. <laughs> um, but anyway, he wrote it in the 16th century because he was like, the church is literally running around uh, accusing rebellious old ladies and annoying little kids of witchcraft and it needs to stop. Um, so as part of his treatise against like the idea of pointy-hatted witches, um, he also spent part of the book being like, I'm going to explain how street performers and charlatans uh, use illusions and make it seem like they have powers. Um, and this is largely considered the oldest known written guide to stage magic. Sorry, illusions. <laughs> But seriously, other than this man right here, uh, when you think of magic, you probably think of like some very key signature stage acts. You probably think of like rabbits coming out of hats or like card tricks. Um, you probably also picture a lady getting sawed in half. I like this one because she looks really over it. Yeah, she's like, <laughs> I'm done. Yeah, she's like, I can't even. Um, the act of sawing lady in half is it just really got people going and always has. Um, in 1956, which was more than 30 years after the trick initially debuted, it was still, it held enough mystery and appeal that um, when PC Sorkar buzzsawed his wife on live TV and then went over time, very relatable, and they cut him off, people called the BBC for days being like, did we watch that man kill his wife? Is that yeah. what he got away? Um, no, she was fine. They just went over time. Um, side note, Sorkar should definitely be remembered more for more than just his poor timing on the BBC. Like his absolutely killer eye for set design. Oh my God. Wow. I want to see this show. But anyway, um, like I said before, the trick is actually more than a century old. Um, it was first performed by Percy Thomas Tibbles, um, who wisely pulled Wait, is a that like, his real name? Yes. <laughs> yeah. No, that is not what he chose to perform with. Percy Thomas Tibbles, um, he pulled a real like uh, Voldemort thing and flipped his name around oh, sure. to go by P.T. Selbit instead, because like he realized he wasn't going to make it as a Tibbles. Oh, boy. Um, and on January 17th, 1921, at London's Finsbury Park Empire Theater, uh, he did the thing. He saw a lady in half, and that was the first time. Um, a lot of historians now say that Tibbles and his contemporary, uh, Tibbles and his contemporaries, uh, were getting like gorier and more daring in the wake of World War One because people just like weren't into genteel stage acts anymore. They needed more shock value. Um, he's said to have played up his run at the Empire by like having stagehands dump buckets of fake blood out into the gutters between shows, like to imply that that was the, the cleanup necessary oh between God. acts. He's so theatrical. Yeah, he also hired ambulances to go around town um, advertising his shows, which like what, did the ambulances not have other things to do? Um, <laughs> Anyway, uh, yeah, sawing the lady in half is not actually necessarily the most dangerous trick. Um, you might be surprised that there haven't been like 
notable accidents. Um, a lot of times when magic tricks go wrong, it's because there's an escape involved and like the thing you're escaping from is actually dangerous or something like sword swallowing where like you're just like a, a hiccup away from death at any moment. Um, but that isn't to say that there's no danger involved and uh, you know who it's not dangerous for is Mr. Tibbles over there. So I'm gonna get back into that in a minute. Um, <laughs> oh, sorry, I can't, oh my God. Okay. <laughs> I can't get over how much Mr. Tibble sounds like a cat. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> there was one of um, the, I, I can't remember if it was, I think it was a Mel.com article, uh, RIP, that was talking about this trick. And they said he went for a decidedly less cat-like name. All right. I'm over and over is cat magician. Yeah. Does the same things. Yeah. So... Um, this trick quickly caught on around the world, and uh, Selbit Knee Tibbles designed more to keep his himself looking fresh. Because basically, it got away from him. He he suddenly couldn't insist that nobody else cut women in half, so he needed more stuff to set himself apart. Um, subsequent tricks performed by Selbit included uh, stretching a lady, oh her face, crushing a woman. There's there would be a woman in in there. Um, I know the connection between all of these tricks might be hard to spot, so I made a diagram to help. <laughs> um, the thing is, Selbit actually intended for his lady sawing trick to be like even more overtly anti-lady, if you can believe it. Um, he originally wanted his lovely assistant to be this lovely lady, Christabel Pankhurst. She was a baddie, a hottie, absolutely not down to be sawn in half, as it turned out. Um, Pankhurst was a well-known English suffragette, and if you're not aware, English suffragettes, like, threw hands. They were very intense, very violent. Um, and she'd actually been a fugitive uh, on the lam for a bit from the law and inspired this toy called the Elusive Christabel. Okay, so it was one of those things where you, like, move it to change the picture, and it says, they seek her here, they seek her there, detectives prowling everywhere, their heads with big, important swell... She's gone, elusive Christabel. So this woman was iconic, <laughs> truly iconic. And she placed an ad asking for well-paying, non-political work. Um, I guess she did not get a good licensing deal on this toy. And um, Selbit pitched her the idea of being sawn in half. And then he obviously told a bunch of newspapers that he had asked her. Um, and she politely but firmly declined. Um, so... Drama scholar Naomi Paxton has pointed out like another layer of the obvious appeal here in that the performance of Sawing a Lady in Half looks a lot like this contemporary image showing journalist uh, Juna Barnes being voluntarily subjected to forced feeding. So many imprisoned suffragettes were on hunger strikes and were forcibly fed, and um, Juna Barnes d volunteered to see what it was like to report, yeah, it's uh, fucking awful. And um, this like very ghoulish image of these women um, who are often portrayed as like mannish and obscene, um, being physically overpowered seemed to hold a lot of popular appeal. This picture circulated a lot. Um, and so it's really not much of a stretch, especially considering that um, Tibbles really wanted Christabel to start this act with him to say that like, they were going for something specifically about uh, crushing ladies who wanted the vote, uh, sawing them, stretching them, et cetera. And um, 
back to song ladies specifically, the way these tricks work actually makes the like kind of feminism tie-in that much more fascinating. Because I was hoping you yeah. were gonna tell us how they work. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, yeah. Magicians hate her. She <laughs> she has all the secrets. Um, I am only sharing things that are very much already online, but um, there are probably magicians who still want to punch me in the face for this, but that's okay. Um, I think I can take almost any magician. I'm going to say that right now. <laughs> oh, um, you're starting a feud right now. <laughs> I am. Um, I said almost any. Listen. So I'm going to show you a few diagrams. Um, so <laughs> Whoa. Here we go. Um, so this is one of the classic methods for sawing a woman in half, where you have this um, oh. extra wide kind of chamber under the real table. And so the lady's got to like contort herself and slide down into the undercarriage of the table so that when they saw, uh, she is not sawed. But that's like t tough, you know? And you know what's also tough is uh, doing this. This is from Wikipedia, and I really appreciate, actually, I didn't notice this at first, but I appreciate that they clarified that those first two would be bad if you see the little X's on her eyes. But that third one, she's A-OK. -okay. So this is another way of doing the trick where there are fake feet. They're often motorized, always wearing shoes, because otherwise people would be able to tell they're fake feet. And so um, a lot of times they'll play with the fact that like if they start with a covered box and then they take the cover off, that feels like they're it's they're making the trick harder. When really, if they like start with a covered box and then take the top off or vice versa, they can be pulling a switcheroo where suddenly like what you thought were her feet are now robot feet. Um, and uh, do the robot feet like wiggle like yeah, they're getting they do. like they're yeah like they're in pain yeah. They, the, the piggies wiggle. And um, <laughs> so this one, like, doesn't look, I mean, it's, it's. What's happening with the feet in C? Well, because they're fake Because they're fake I think, feet, but yeah, why that's they clarifying, look like Frankenstein feet? Th that's clarifying that they're fake. Oh, my God. So that you understand. <laughs> There's that much tiny more. details. <laughs> yeah. yeah um, thank you, the, the great artiste who put this on Wiki, Wikimedia Commons for us. Um, look at this. Oh. This is insane. This is how, like, as these tricks get more compl complicated, now they often involve multiple people because you literally have someone hidden in there, like contorted up so that the person who's being cut in half can pull themselves into a little ball and there's still somebody on the other side with their feet out. And it's just wild and requires so much skill. And um, the thing is that if a lovely assistant climbs into some kind of box. Like, these are very common old mechanisms. That's why there are diagrams of them on the internet. But like, even today, if a lovely assistant climbs into some kind of apparatus, it's a safe bet that she's doing something incredible in there with her body, right. while the guy with top billing makes like magic faces at you. Um, and there's a great documentary about this called uh, Women in Boxes um, that, gets into the whole, like, who's doing the real trick, the assistant or the magician. And it's really fascinating. As somebody who grew up watching, like, ABC Family Magic Specials <laughs> and being very obsessed with them, I definitely felt, like, um, a real pang for all of the, like, lovely assistants I had completely ignored in favor of, um, you know, 
some dude. But there are magicians. Like, Chris Angel is very big on, like, I do my own tricks. And he specifically will say, like, it's because he thinks it's messed up that people um, who get top billing are the ones not actually doing the hard work a lot of the time. And it really just comes down to the fact that um, the lovely assistants are often the real magicians. And um, it all started... <laughs> With Tibbles. So, Tibbles. Thank you for that, Mr. Tibbles. Um, that's my fact. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Okay. <laughs> okay. I was apparently the only one who went old school with my note cards, so pardon me. Um, trees. What are they? Huh. I don't know. Ideas? Anyone? What is a tree? If you had to. It has a trunk. It's that's good. And taller than a shrub. That's an in that's interesting. We're gonna get into that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Unpack leaves. That. Okay. These are good. These are the good. Plant. But not in the winter. Some do. Some do. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. okay. So uh, you know, there's there's no there's no single scientific answer. There's no right answer. Um, but like a, a central trunk, I think we see features pretty strongly here. Sorry, there's a screen behind you that I'm gesturing at confusingly. That's so nice over there. Um, you know, leaves. Uh, wood is in there. Um, mm -hmm. So, like, redwood, oak, I think we can all agree these are trees. Banana, maybe it's a little less tree-like, but I think we can see a strong trunk here. I think we see leaves, the bananas. I really wish this had a later pointer. Oh, maybe it does. No, I don't think it does. Um, <laughs> Papaya, similarly, I think slightly funnier looking because the papayas, I never expected them to grow exactly like this, but definitely, definitely still a strong tree resemblance. I've never seen a papaya tree. That's weird. I know. I know. There's definitely a whole like, like long lost pop size story that I should have written that it's just yeah. like all the weird ways that things grow. Yeah. Or maybe I did write that and I've forgotten. I think, I think Kendra wrote that. Oh, Kendra wrote that. Oh, God. All right. Kendra. Well, there you go. I'm stealing her idea after she already wrote it. Um, what about bamboo, though? Isn't it a grass? Is it? <laughs> <laughs> you tell me! Is it? It looks like a tree. I mean, I think 
it's got a it's got sort of a trunk situation. This You're one right. even this one even has a different color. It's sort of yellowish. It's woody. It's woody. You can uh, everything that's made out of wood you can buy in a bamboo version now. It's got <laughs> it's got branches and and leaves of some kind, but I just I would I think there's something about bamboo that we can all agree that says like mm, is it a tree? <laughs> I don't really know. I think it's that it's like I think it's a little too green. I think it's a little too skinny. But but it has some tree-like characteristics. <laughs> but it's just maybe going a little bit too far. So I feel like, you know, step back. <laughs> I think a tree has to have a, a central woody trunk. I think, I think we can agree on that. Um, and the good news is that that's like actually sort of scientifically defined. So like the way trees get trunks, or you know, what we think of as trees, um, are secondary growth of the cambia, which is like a specific layer inside of plants. And it takes semi-differentiated cells and they become more differentiated and it grows outwards in the way that we all know that, that trees grow. So like primary growth, that's taller essentially, like any growth that happens at the tip of a stem or a tip of a root, that's primary, secondary, girthier. Good? Mm -hmm. Okay, so we could maybe say that they're like things with woody stems slash trunks that have some kind of secondary growth. And we definitely need both because we could say like a woody stem, but then we'd have to say forsythia is a tree. I think we can all see it's not, although confusingly you can make it kind of look like a tree. But unfortunately we also can't say that it is just like anything with secondary growth because um, that's a potato also. Oh boy. Both potatoes and sweet potatoes. Don't tell a potato it can't be a tree if it lets <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think it's not going to make it. So uh, potatoes, potatoes are, are tubers, as we all know. Um, and they're specifically stem tubers, so they are, they are quite literally just big, fat, stems and they have all the parts of a stem as well they have like oh. so the potato eyes are stem nodes yeah and that's why if you leave a potato lying around it will begin to grow new stems because it is but a stem itself trying to grow new stems wow. it's it's everything it needs it's yeah everything. it's everything <laughs> it needs sweet potatoes um, however are, are root tubers and so they cannot they have no eyes they cannot grow they have no eyes. They are eyeless. Sounds and like the beginning of a horror movie. I know. I know. I'm it's, scared. Yeah. I have no eyes, but I must potato. <laughs> um, carrots, also similarly, just really fat tap roots, just specialized roots. And they're all just meant to, like, store energy for the plant. And they just got really, really extremely good at it. Um, so trees are things with a central woody trunk. <laughs> that undergo secondary growth. And that, like, I think that feels right, you know? Um, secondary growth is also how you get tree rings. We, we literally call them right. tree rings. There's no other word for them. So I, that feels like very fundamental to treeness, if you will. Um, and the good news is that with that definition, we've, like, we've gotten rid of bamboo. <laughs> definitely not a tree. <laughs> yeah, screw you, bamboo. Yeah, definitely not a tree. Um, but unfortunately, Palm trees, not what? trees, not trees. Uh, palm trees have anomalous secondary growth only, which is, is growth of a, of a different, just a slightly different part. And as a result, they do not have rings. 
this it looks so wrong. I know, right? Shocking to me. I know. <laughs> it looks I feel like, like there's a ring in there. So that you can see there's like sort of like a like a core, you know? But right. then it's just it looks fuzzy almost, doesn't it? Yeah, it looks like a coconut. I think it looks like, um, you know, if you like cut open like a stuffed animal. Oh. But it's a tree. I feel like I shouldn't Eric, be looking at this. you cut open stuffed animals? <laughs> I just think it, I think it looks wrong. It doesn't look like a tree somehow. No. Um, well, because it's not a tree. Because it's not a tree. Exactly. Oh. It's not a tree. Palm trees, not trees. <laughs> um, Joshua trees, certainly oh, not oh, trees. I love them. Certainly not trees. They are a kind of yucca plant. Oh. Uh, so they are they are not weird trees, but weird yuccas. And actually not that even that weird for yuccas because they're a pretty weird group all the way around. Um, but that kind of brings us to like a, I think what may end up being the central defining treeness of trees, which is that it looks like a tree. It has it has what what is technically called a tree-like habit or an, arbore- an arborescent <laughs> an, an arborescent habit, which I think is a really beautiful a really beautiful term, um, and that it's like kind of the closest definition I think that we're we maybe get to with trees is that they look like trees. It's treeish. It's treeish, and that's that's what they are for us. Um, and like really, it's because to be a tree, like trees are not so much a category as they are an evolutionary strategy that is just like, be taller. (laughs) That's the goal. And if you can imagine trees evolving originally and you had all these like little shrubby things, if you could be a little taller, you could get a little bit more sunlight. And then when you think about it, actually everything that you think of as as tree-ish comes from just wanting to be taller. Like if you have a woody trunk, then you can be taller and have more structure. And then once you do that, you kind of need bigger roots. And then if you have bigger roots, you can grow branches. You can get even taller still. And then if you're really big, you can, you can grow for a long time. And then like, you know, suddenly you have an oak tree. You're just there already. This is like when I came to terms with my height as a six foot two woman and decided I can wear heels again. It's like I'm constantly striving to be taller, just like a tree. Just a little bit taller. Yeah. Yeah, and you've gotten more sunlight, haven't you? Do you feel? I, I have like, gotten more sunlight. It's forcing through my veins. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. empowering, isn't it? It is. Tree. It you is. have a tree-like habit, I would say. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, so in a way, this also kind of brings us to crabs. <laughs> I was gonna, when you said it's it's more of an evolutionary strategy, I was you like, saw like the, being you, a crab. You saw, <laughs> you saw the crabs coming, yeah. So I mean, um, so like you know, so just we're gonna pause on the crab. So wood evolved like kind of late in the in plant evolution, like this well into the second half of plant evolution, um, and it's not like they all evolved from a singular, you know, the idea of a tree became and then everything spread out from there. Like, wood evolved 38 separate times just on the Canary Islands. What? Yeah. Like, it just, it's a very successful strategy. And so nature keeps doing it exactly like crabs. Uh, Nature just keeps making them. So it's, I think, I feel like surely must we all know carcinogy. Oh, God. Carcinization? Yes. I think you have. Yeah, okay. Um, which is the convergent evolution just keeps making the crab shape because it is, for some reason, very helpful. So this is not a crab. It's a squat lobster, which is also not a lobster. What? It's not a lobster. It's not a crab. It's just a flat crustacean. Sarah. I know. I know. Hermit crabs. Not crabs. I, was just, I know this no. one can't be a crab. Cer- certainly not, not crabs. Um, 
These look way crabbier, right? There's like way more of that classic crab yeah. shape. This is a porcelain crab, also not a crab. Because <laughs> it's made of porcelain. Because it's made of porcelain. And this is a king crab, which also, horrifyingly, not a crab. No way. A king crab is not a true crab. Isn't that upsetting? What are they? They're, they're a fake crab. Like, true, <laughs> true crabs are of the infraorder Brachiura, and that is the scientific definition of a true crab. You must be in that family, and all of these other crabs are imposters. imposters. Yeah, exactly. They're just they're trying to share in the evolutionary strategy of crabness. I also think it's interesting because crabs, like we don't, we genuinely don't understand why this is helpful. Yeah, like what is it? What is it? Well, I I saw someone recently be like, "Will one day will humans evolve into crab shape?" And someone was like. Don't you think we already have? Oh. And they were like, <laughs> and I was like, oh my god, we are, in the grand scheme of things, pretty crab-like. Yeah, we do have larger front yeah, appendages. Yeah, yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> think about it. Yeah. Yeah. All we need is a shell. Of the primates, we're among the crabbiest. <laughs> oh That's god. true. But yeah, so, something about the crab shape is really helpful, and we still haven't figured out what it is, but nature keeps making them. Um, and like trees are the same, except that we know exactly what makes them beneficial. They get big and strong and tall, like Jess, and yeah. get more sunlight. And, and I feel like there's actually something, like in a weird way, I started out a little bit angry, if I'm being honest, that trees weren't a real thing. I just thought like, this cannot be yet another thing, like that corn fact that I did several lives yeah. ago, where just like nothing means anything anymore in botany. Um, but I actually think there's something kind of beautiful that like, it can look like a crab and not be a crab, but if it looks like a tree, so it's be a tree. It. It's wow. a tree. That's it. Be anything you want to be. Exactly. As long as you look like a tree, you can be a tree. You can be anything that. you want. I'm inspired. The end. many others this summer saw Oppenheimer and Barbie um, and the movie was excellent uh, really truly a great film um, but one of the scenes that really stuck out to me was this one right here um, and if you haven't seen it there are just truly no spoiler like, okay fine I'm spoiling it with this image but it, it's all good it happened in history yeah. so <laughs> the world history um, has spoiled we know we know uh, so um, this was a scene during the Trinity test where uh, theoretical physicist Edward Teller covers himself in sunscreen. I'm holding this still. Uh, <laughs> covers himself in sunscreen uh, to protect himself from the dangerous effects of the bomb's flash. Cool. Okay. <laughs> so this begs a lot of questions for me. Uh, first, uh, did we actually have sunscreen in 1945? And second, would it really have like protected him from the bomb's flash? Okay, um, massive disclaimer here. If you all saw Oppenheimer and this wasn't your favorite scene, that's normal and okay. Um, really, as expected. The thing with me um, is that I am a, a sunscreen enthusiast. Um, so my mother, but is a chemical engineer and cosmetic chemist. And for 
most of my childhood uh, made sunscreen for a living for banana boat sunscreen. So uh, all of the sunscreen that you used if you used banana boat in the late 90s and 2000s uh, was uh, my mom's and others' formulas. So uh, I just grew up with sunscreen. Okay, there was sunscreen in my basement, boxes of it. She would come <laughs> home, she had a new formula, we would try it out. Like, I loved sunscreen. It was awesome. I knew so much about it. I knew what SPF was when I was 10. Okay, no one else knows that. Um, uh, so <clears throat> when this scene came up, I was like, what? I did not think they had sunscreen in 1945. This makes no sense. So I must investigate. All right. Um, for the first thing I did was make sure that this fact was correct because it is indeed a movie and you take liberties with movies, okay? So I found two good references. Now, the first was according to a report from the, I'm left-handed, from the US Department of Energy's Office of Scientific and Technical Information that detailed the goings-on on the day of the Trinity test. The report says, quote, meanwhile, Edward Teller was making everyone nervous by applying liberal amounts of sunscreen in the pre-dawn darkness and offering to pass it around. <laughs> um, that would be me. <laughs> same, I mean, same. <laughs> Uh, and then Edward Teller actually passed away on September 9th, uh, 2003, at the age of 95. Um, and in his obituary a few days later in the Washington Post, it states, wearing welder's goggles with his face and hands smeared with suntan lotion as protection against radiation, Dr. Teller was one of the small group of noted physicists on hand at Alamogordo in New Mexico desert uh, to witness the world's first atomic explosions. So US government and Washington Post, I feel good that sunscreen was on hand that day. Uh, so now in my quest to understand what the sunscreen was, it sent me down a lovely rabbit hole of bizarre facts about the history of sunscreen that I didn't know and I bet you my mother did not know either. So please <laughs> enjoy. All right. Um, now, We'll leave it. Uh, now, one final disclaimer. I did try to include as much as I could, but some, some information was either boring, not interesting, or there's just like too much. Like, there's a lot out there on sunscreen, you guys. I really hope that you become sunscreen enthusiasts after this. Um, so, there's stuff I left out. I know there's other things about sunscreen. <laughs> So we're starting way, way back. Um, it is a fact that humans did not invent sunscreen. Animals have involved various ways to protect themselves from the sun. Here are a few of my favorites. Obviously, uh, the fur coats of animals can serve as protection against sunburn. Hippos secrete a reddish oily fluid. Okay, reddish oily fluid comes back. So just remember it, that. Um, sometimes called, quote, blood sweat from special glands in their skin. Blood sweat. And, yes. <laughs> and it mainly functions as antibiotic and moisturizer, but some researchers think it has some sunburn protection factors in it. Um, elephants, as seen here, cuties, um, actively seek out shelter and shade on a regular basis, but an even more common coping mechanism is coating themselves with mud. Um, the mud aids in skin care, uh, but researchers have found that also provides some sun protection. Uh, 
But I will give it to humans that we were incredibly creative um, in our hunt for protection from the sun. So here we are today, so many types of sunscreen, um, and still inventing uh, you know, every day. Still have a long way to go. The sun. <laughs> so uh, that is what it looks like. It yeah. is <laughs> exactly what it looks like, and it smiles. Um, so at some point in human history, humans everywhere around the world were like, "Oh no, I love the sun, but it is bad. It gives me <laughs> a burn. What do I do?" Um, so there's evidence that ancient Egyptians used rice bran, jasmine, lupine to block the tanning effects of the sun on their skin. Greeks used olive oil, not very successfully. Um, and the Viking used a combination of uh, charcoal, um, burnt almonds, lead, and oh, oxidized copper and ash as an eyeliner to protect uh, their eyes from I mean, the sun. The le lead does a great job shielding you from the sun. <laughs> yeah, it does a lot of stuff. Um, so very creative. Um, okay, so now I told you we're going to jump around a bit. Um, we are going to flash forward to 1938. We had. <laughs> I, went a, I went a little crazy. I just like discovered that I could do that, and I was like, "Ooh, I'm going to do it like a lot." Um, okay, so. Here we are. Um, and as the story goes, it is 1938, and a Swiss chemist named Franz Greter goes climbing and attempts to summit Mount Pismun. Now, I couldn't find a good picture of Franz that I was allowed to use, so I went with Mount Pismun. There it is. Oh, wow. What a beaut. Yeah. Um, and so he attempts to climb, summit this mountain, and, um, oh, it's in the Alps, in case you're wondering, in Switzerland, uh, the border of Switzerland and Austria. And <clears throat> he climbs up and doesn't, it takes way longer than him and his comrades expected, and I'm sure you can guess, he gets a sunburn. And he is so angry about it that he's like, over the next, uh, for the rest of my career, I am going to create sunscreen, um, some Sorry, way to protect myself from the, the sun. sun? <laughs> <laughs> These are good questions. However, have you ever had a sunburn? I mean, mistakes are made a lot. I guess I'm just surprised that he got, you know, like so late in his life, and then was like, "This is such a traumatic event that I will change the course of my life." Maybe yeah. it was just a really bad sunburn. Yeah. I've had some, yeah, but then they go away, and you're like, "Okay, you know what? I'm not gonna create sunburn, like sunscreen. It's, <laughs> it's just a bad burn, like a bad haircut. And I feel better now." But yes. yeah. Uh, yeah, he he went for it. So uh, this incident sends him down a decades-long quest. Uh, which culminates in him developing and commercializing the first modern sunscreen called Glacier Cream, or Glacier Cream. Um, he names his brand Pizbuen in honor of the mountain that burned him. <laughs> he is also credited for um, creating the sun protection factor ratings, and uh, he Name, he labeled his as an SPF rating of two. Oh. 
awesome. He's, he's awesome. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> so, yeah. All right. So, jumping forward again. Um, oh, back. Okay. So, this was a decade after he climbed mountain, got burned. He creates the sunscreen. Now we're going to go back a little bit in time and we're going to enter the US Army. That is not the US Army. Just stay with me. Um, the year is 1942. Morale is not excellent. Uh, we are in the middle of World War II and the Army Air Force, which uh, I didn't know what the Army Air Force was until last night. I knew what the Army was. I knew what the Air Force was. Uh, it's a component of the Army that flies, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> so the more you know. Um, they approached the American Medical Association Council of Pharmacy and Chemistry for a top, quote, top secret experiment. Now, just so you know, I'm not making this up. I decided to use a quote from the, a 2001 article in the Journal of Photochemistry and Photobiology, B colon biology. That is what it's called. Um, quote, one of the most unusual episodes in the history of sunscreen development occurred in 1942. The Army Air Force Material Center, represented by Colonel Otis Benson, approached the American Medical Association Council of Pharmacy and Chemistry with the request to advise about the most effective protective substance for the prophylaxis of sunburn. The idea was to protect men marooned on life rafts or in the desert following aircraft crashes. The results of any studies were to be kept as, quote, top secret. Lots to unpack here. First, I don't know what you would be thinking if you were marooned on a life raft or stuck in the middle of the ocean somewhere, but even I, a sunscreen devotee, uh, would absolutely not be thinking about whether I would get burned that day. I would think about uh, one, water, uh, two, food, three, shelter. Um, but the Army was very insistent that there, if the event this happened, that their soldiers would not get sunburned. Someone up top there had one too many bad burns. Yeah. So. <clears throat> They had three uh, key necessary qualities. One was waterproof, two was inexpensive, and three was free of toxicity. Great. Excellent. Those are good choices, especially the third one. Um, so it seems like for the next two years, scientists uh, there that were given the download on the top secret experiment um, were experimenting with various products. And then by 1944, they had a breakthrough. Benjamin Green, an airman, an airman and a pharmacist, comes up with the idea to use a substance called Red Vet Pet, which is red veterinary petrolatum. Oh. Yeah, huh? Uh, petrolatum just being Vaseline. Vaseline's just the name brand for 100% petrolatum. Um, I don't know if you've ever used Vaseline, um, you know, like on your face at night as TikTok beauty videos <laughs> tell you to do, but it's intense. You know, I wouldn't really call it comfortable and it kind of just sits there and it's annoying. So um, 
basically everyone agrees with me back then. Uh, <laughs> they are like, what is this gross product that you expect me to use? Um, uh, but it does meet all the requirements. So it's waterproof, inexpensive, and it is free of toxicity. In fact, petrolatum is one of the safest products you can put on your face. Essentially what it does is it creates a very like a physical barrier between your skin and the elements. Uh, again, SPF uh, did not exist at that time, but uh, researchers have also given um, Red Vet, Pet, or and Petrolatum an SPF rating of about one to two. Oh my gosh! So, yeah, not not great. No. Uh, truly, just barely gets the job done. Um, so going back to Oppenheimer, uh, this was really the main product at the time that was labeled as sunscreen. And so that doesn't look red though. It honestly doesn't. It looks pretty white. Um, so I was unconvinced that that is Red Vet Pet on him. And I really couldn't find anything else at the time that is considered sunscreen in the 1940s. The only other product that was theoretically available was titanium dioxide and zinc oxide. Um, but those really weren't formulated into a sunscreen until decades later. Um, they were actually first formulated into like diaper creams for babies who had diaper rashes first um, before they were sunscreens. So unless this theoretical physicist knew things that we didn't know <laughs> and was like, I've got a stash of titanium oxide. Do you want some? I know it works well. I'm just unconvinced that uh, this was Red Vet Pet. But, you know, maybe they took some liberties. Um, okay, so now I'm gonna jump uh, forward one more time. Uh, yay, sun bad. <laughs> uh, there's the mountain again. All right, um, and the sun is back. Now, uh, jumping back one more time to in the 1920s. So now, just like thinking about sunscreen broadly, we created uh, Red Vet Pet, and it has an SPF of two. Uh, the other guy's weird mountain product, also SPF of two. No one's really doing an excellent job of protecting uh, themselves from the sun. And meanwhile, uh, mixed in with all of this, all of a sudden, people everywhere are like, tanning is cool. And uh, that takes us to the 1920s uh, and Coco Chanel, super popular person, very cool and trendy at the time. And apparently as the story goes, she goes on vacation and doesn't wear proper protection. And she, instead of getting a sunburn, she gets a suntan. But even so, all, she gets pictures taken and everyone's like, oh, your skin um, is very tan. And she's like, I meant to do this. I right. wanted it like this. Tanning is cool. The sun is awesome. Oh. <laughs> I, I had fun with yeah. this last night. Um, and that really like started, at least uh, in America and uh, Europe, this idea that tanning is cool and trendy and fun. And it's something that uh, dermatologists and sunscreen manufacturers have had to uh, work against ever since. Indeed, uh, pharmacist and Vaseline enthusiast 
Benjamin Green, going back to his red vet pet, he takes that product and he transforms it into a more pleasing, consumer-friendly version of the product by adding cocoa butter and coconut oil, a combination that eventually becomes Copper Tone Suntan Lotion. Oh. No SPF in there, just zero. <laughs> no. <laughs> Negative. <laughs> Uh, so now to very quickly sum up between the 1940s and now, uh, we have this almost like tug of war between suntan lotion and Coco Chanel uh, and sunscreen and sun, sun protection and sun care. And obviously sunscreens have gotten a lot better um, and more diverse. And I have a slide of sunscreen spray, cool. Um, uh, waterproof and suntanicals, 1990s, banana boat, I think, 2000s. Um, <clears throat> and obviously, we've come a long way, but we still have a long way to go to make them palatable, cheaper, and more friendly to all skin types. But at least we don't have Vaseline as sunscreen. <laughs> the end. <laughs> Jess, are you ready? I was born ready. <laughs> talk to talk about, about cheese. cheese magic? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, cool. So, oh, go to RachelFilma.com. <laughs> yeah, it's true. www.RachelFilma.com, newsletters, merch, and more. Also, just like all the weirdest thing stuff is there, too. So. Yeah. Cheese magic. Okay. <laughs> so, when it comes to telling fortunes, there's a lot of ways you could do it. Tarot cards, tea leaves, palms. Stars. Um, but what about cheese? It's more likely than you think. Uh, in fact, this goes back hundreds of years. The art of using cheese to tell fortunes is actually called tyromancy. Uh, so this, this word is Greek, or its roots are in Greek. So turos means cheese, mantella means divination, and divination is like, you know, how you seek knowledge using supernatural means, essentially. So, you know, cheese divination is tyromancy. Um, so uh, this is something that, uh, that appears in books all the way back to the second century. There was this guy named Art, Ar <laughs> Artemidorus of Daldis. Uh, what a name. Professional fortune teller, and he wrote about it in relation to his work um, on dream interpretation. He was like a dream interpreter. But he didn't like cheese. He did not like tyromancy. He thought it was not real fortune telling. What? Um, I know. So he said, he specifically hated cheesecake, which I think is really funny. Um, he said it signified trickery and ambushes. And this is, yeah, which, I don't know. Because he like didn't want a cake to secretly be cheese. Probably. All right, I don't think it's that much of a secret though. I don't think so, it's called cheesecake. Um, and he was quoted as saying, quote, the truth is spoken by sacrificers and bird diviners and astrologers and observers of wonders and dream diviners and liver examiners alone. So all of those only are, those. Oh, those are the only real fortune tellers, but not tyromancers. Um, so yeah, he was pretty bitter, pretty salty about this whole thing, kind of like feta cheese. Um, 
Anyway, before we dive into the specifics of tyromancy, let's set the stage a little bit. We'll talk about how cheese um, has kind of like had this air of magic and that sort of thing for, for many hundreds of years. So back in ancient Greece and Rome, people offered cheese to deities. Um, and it was said that there was this god of shepherds and beekeepers, same, same dude. Um, his name was Aristeus, and he learned to make cheese from nymphs, and then he, was, he taught the humans how to make cheese. Um, that was their story of, of cheese. Um, and if you've read the Odyssey, uh, or the wonderful novel Circe by Madeline Miller, which it's such a good book. If you haven't read it, they know. Uh, that's about the witch Circe in the um, story of Odysseus. And she basically like turned Odysseus's squad into animals using a magic potion disguised as a fancy drink. And that drink had, uh, if I can find my place, yes, which had barley meal, honey, wine, and of course, cheese. Um, so magic cheese potion turned them into animals. Um, and then basically it continued to, cheese magic continued to be tied to like witches and witchcraft for a while. So in the 12th century, people thought um, Italian innkeepers were feeding customers cheese to turn them into donkeys. Uh, later on in the 17th century, during the Renaissance, there was this one dairy maid named Isabel Maine, which I'm watching a lot of Suits lately, and that just sounds like a lawyer name. I don't know. Uh, but basically, Isabel like had this batch of milk from her cow that wouldn't turn into cheese, so she thought she was like cursed. Um, so she had, <laughs> I know, she had this magician named Margaret Stothard, and she came to look at the cow and said it had been cursed. And then she did a spell so that it would make cheese again. Um, so yeah, all of this like witchy stuff is kind of all happening behind the scenes with cheese. Um, but did you know that in addition to being witchy, cheese can also be sexy? I didn't know that. Yeah, you did, of course, of course. Uh, so this might be my favorite cheese fact of the night. Um, there was this guy in the 13th century named Odo of Cheriton, and he was a moralist and a theologian and he did not like grilled cheese because he said it was akin to adultery. <laughs> Here's the quote that he said. Cheese is toasted and placed in a trap. When the rat smells it, it enters the trap, seizes the cheese, and is caught by the trap. So it is with all sin. Cheese is toasted, then, cheese is toasted when a woman is dressed up and adorned so that she entices and catches the foolish rats. Take a woman in adultery and the devil will catch you. I mean, have you had grilled cheese? Yeah. It, I, you know, I, I, it's, I get it. There are worse things to be compared to. I like, agree. Sensually. Yeah. yeah. Um... Also, I have this nice, sexy grilled cheese. I, I was talking about needing a sexy picture of grilled cheese. And this is my friend John. Uh, he streams food content on Twitch, and this is his sexy grilled cheese. Um, That's very nice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You can also do um, some so more romantic magic with cheese. You can write, people used to do this, write the name of a person you want to date, on, like multiple people, on different pieces of cheese. You leave them out overnight or for however long it takes to one to get moldy. The one that molds first is the one you gotta go for. Um, you could also do, if you're really crunched for time, you, um, you can put, you could do the same thing, write the names on the cheese and then put them in a cage with a hung hungry rat. And whatever cheese gets eaten first is the one you should go for, which I think is fun because it's like, 
Um, when you have your cat decide who's going to win the Super Bowl. <laughs> That's what it reminds me of. Um, but anyway, so I have so many cheese facts. <laughs> In the 14th century, you can bite off a piece of bread and cheese, toss it over the shoulder. Good luck for fertility. That's nice. Um, and also, it can help in other ways with fertility. Like, if a witch curses your guy's junk and it's not, you know, things aren't happening for you, you can cure this by taking a block of cheese, boring a huge, not a huge, and like a little hole all the way through. <laughs> and then you gotta feed him the little cheese that came out of the hole, and then he's cured. <laughs> <laughs> another way I will admit it could have gone another way um, but that's it didn't go that way so <laughs> finally cheese can be used or has been used in the past as a practical tool so medieval folks use it to decide who committed a crime kind of like the witch hunt stuff like floating or sinking um, so you'd sit down your criminals put a spell on the cheese here's the cheese there, yeah there's there's the cheese spell May his mouth be cursed and full of bitterness under his tongue, pain and labor. If he's guilty, he will eat in the name of the devil. If he's not guilty, he will eat in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever that means. He, but he eats either way? Right. So the, yeah. so the thing is, either way. both the criminals then eat the cheese, but one of them, if they can't chew and swallow the cheese, that they're guilty. It's an eating contest? Yeah. To decide yeah. who dies? I, listen, I can't okay. say I understand it. Um, I've been preparing for this my whole life. <laughs> yeah, that's what I said, too. I was like, is this just a way to punish people who don't like cheese? Yes. I guess so. Um, and then, okay, I also learned about cheese fairies. If you wanted a good harvest, you would toss cheese into the cheese well to give to the cheese fairies in Scotland. That hole is a former cheese well. And now there's like a stone there, as you can see on the right. Uh, and people give coins to it now for the fairies. But they used to give it cheese. Wait, sorry, what's a cheese well? A cheese well. It's a hole in the ground where you toss the cheese. And then the fairies go get it. Yeah, Claire gets Those it. Those fairies are probably... Okay. <laughs> you threw yeah, it the, out there like a cheese well, obviously. A cheese well. Yeah. I know, okay. the fairies probably right. are very cheese-deprived now. Yeah. I didn't even think about that. Um, I really should have known... Okay, hold... Oh, that's, that's for later, okay. <laughs> so basically, all this cheese magic paved the way for a more structured modern version of tyromancy, um, which today is very similar to how you'd read tarot cards and poems and tea leaves and stuff. Um, so basically how that works today is you bring your own cheese to your tyromancer. It's BYOC. <laughs> they use that piece of cheese to answer questions or foretell something. Basically, like you can ask about your career, a romantic situation, what, hap what might happen in the future, all of that kind of stuff. And then tyromancers use like the, the size or number of holes in a Swiss cheese or like the veining in a blue cheese or like you can see symbols in the veining in blue cheese. Um, any kind of like natural cheese that is not uniform in nature, like a craft single, no go <laughs> for tyromancy. Um, and so yeah, and like you see symbols like a triangle might mean change or like a heart could mean love, all of these things, you know, very similar to tea leaf reading. And actually I've learned that you can do like, you know, tea leaves, you dump out your tea leaves and then you look at the, for the symbols. You can do the same thing with a, with a um, like crumbly cheese in a cup and you <laughs> dump it out and then you look for the, what the patterns. Great. Um, also, I know many of you were thinking, if you listen to the show, wow, Jess hasn't brought up video games once yet. <laughs> I was thinking that. Behold, <laughs> The Witcher 3. <laughs> um, 
I so I've never played the Witcher games, and people get very mad at me about that. And see, I'm seeing one right now. <laughs> and I don't know. I think it was just like I missed it, and then I feel like it's kind of, you know, I'm playing Baldur's Gate three now, so I feel like that's scra scratching the same itch. Anyway, there's Tyromancy quests in The Witcher, um, and uh, they talk about doing Tyromancy using fondue. Also, these are this is a screenshot from the game where there's statues holding cheese. Incredibly unserious. Yep. So this wait, is Wait, how do you do it with fondue? It's a uniform. Oh, just wait. <laughs> just wait. It's like a the, craft singles, just like a lot of them. Well, it involves a candle. The best divination is done using the ancient method of fondue. One must simply melt two kinds of cheese, preferably a mental or gruyere, in white wine or in a pinch of dry apple cider, then one must use a long stick to immerse a morsel of bread in the resultant thick, soup, thick soupy mixture, all the while keeping in mind the question, what shall my child be like when he or she, as the case may be, grows? Then bring the cheese-covered morsel of bread up to a candle so that it casts a shadow on the wall. The shape will provide a sure and easily understood answer to your query. Sure and easily understood? <laughs> hey, to maybe to a cheese fortune teller, I don't know. Um, so that's another way to do it. Um, and, oh, what, what, I don't know what this was for. I'll, I'll, let, it, I'll let it ride. Um, okay, oh, I know where I'm going with this. So we've heard all about cheese divination. You might be wondering, why would people think cheese is magic? I'm not wondering that. <laughs> yeah, that's, that, that's exactly right. Yeah. We've all had cheese. We understand collectively that it is magically delicious. But uh, actually, 12th century mystic Hildegard von Bingen oh my gosh, my frequently God. comes up all the time on this show, um, talked about cheese as magic and compared the act of cheese making to the miracle of life, essentially because it seemed like something was like coming from nothing. Like cheese curds come from like this liquid milk, so something solid's coming up from something liquid. It's all very weird. Um, and then also like the idea that like you give milk to babies, babies become adults. It's like, seems it's like this very mystical sort of thing, which like now as I say this, it's like, it's kind of a stretch. But back then, back then they were like, this is some shit. <laughs> um, and yeah, well, we're talking about like, in theory, the scientific roots behind cheese magic, which, you know, may or may not be there. But I wanted to investigate the roots um, of cheese giving people weird dreams and nightmares. <laughs> because that's something I feel like we talk about all the time. And like, I don't know if that's real. Because um, sometimes I feel like that happens to me. But like, is that just the culture? I don't know. So uh, it turns out it might be. <laughs> so people have tried to study this. Um, but it's hard because we just know so little about dreams in general. It's very hard to study dreams because they're, you know, it's a lot of like surveys and you can't do a lot of like, you know, data and testing and all that stuff. But uh, two scientists named Tor Nielsen and Russell Powell did a study at the Dream and Nightmare Laboratory at the Sacre-Cœur Hospital in Montreal. They had about 400 college kids answer some questions about their diet and their dreams. And while only about 12% of people said their dreams were affected by food, uh, of that 12%, 44 said that dairy gave them disturbing dreams. And 40% uh, said they were bizarre dreams. So disturbing or bizarre dreams. And when it came to the kind of dairy, it was cheese. So, of course, the study didn't look at any kind of mechanism. It's all like self-reported data, that sort of stuff. But um, these people could have just been like influenced by culture. Dreams are like very suggestible for a lot of people. Um, but maybe for people who are like lactose intolerant, maybe eating cheese before bed can interrupt your sleep patterns. That's possible. 
Um, or, you know, maybe the particular carb protein fat ratio is the perfect storm to help you enter a deep REM sleep. Who's to say? Um, we just don't have the info, but there is definitely a cultural pattern of like cheese giving people dreams. So, well, you know, who knows? Uh, to wrap it all up, we've talked about cheese magic, where it came from, why people did it, where it's been, but what about today? Today, can there be cheese magic, modern cheese magic? And the answer is yes. And I found a woman who does it. Her name is Jen. And she's excellent. And I talked to her. Give it up for Jen. Um, she is a fellow Chicagoan, and she's a journalist. And she's, um, she writes about travel and food. And she also does tyromancy. She'll go to like restaurants um, and do like a wine pairing with like a little tyromancy and talk about the history of it and read your fortune. Um, and yeah, she'll also do group sessions, individual sessions. She's great. Uh, and if you book with her, remember to BYOC. And that's what I have to say about cheese magic. Incredible. So um, that brings us to the end of our facts. Um, and unfortunately, because uh, the wonderful people at Caveat have to turn over the space for their 9 o'clock show, um, that is also the end of our time here. Um, but it has been so lovely getting to, I'm not going to say see all your beautiful faces, because a lot of you just kind of look like shapes to me. But <laughs> I'm. I love that you're there anyway. Wait, Rachel, do we not vote on facts oh, anymore? Yeah, so is recently, it just like abolished all happy now? Everyone. Yeah. Recently, I decided that um, I, I I didn't like uh, there being a winner, mostly because we just kept tying, and I was like, everybody's so good. Oh, okay. But everybody nice. is so good. Um, so I would love for everybody to give it up for all of our facts, but particularly starting with. Sarah Chodosh's fact. No treat. And can we get some love for Claire Maldarelli's Sunscreen Expose? And the amazing Jess Bodie's Cheese Magic. Thank you all so much. I really hope you're going to be able you to. Do your back. I, yeah, I can't. Oh, clap for me. Thank you. Thank you. Um, this is literally the only reason why I wanted to do this show. Uh, but um, seriously, thank you guys so much for coming out. Uh, we definitely hope to do this again soon. Um, thanks for listening to Weirdest Thing. Tell all your friends. Keep listening. Keep sharing. Buy my weird merchandise if you want. I literally make like pennies on the dollar for it. It's truly for the graphic design is my passion. It's the love <laughs> of the game. Um, and yeah, thank you to Caveat for hosting us. Uh, it's been a wonderful evening as always. And uh, we hope to be back here real, real soon. So everybody have a great night. Um, remember to tip your bartender and uh, <laughs> and uh, be nice to the caveat folks uh, while we're clearing out. We will definitely try to say hello, um, but keep in mind that they do have another show coming in. Cool. That's it. We're done. Goodbye. <laughs> And 
Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.